Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Saved at Sea by Mrs. O.F. Walton by permission of Forgotten Books, and we are on Chapter 9, A Change in the Lighthouse. It seemed a long time before my grandfather came back, and then he only said in a low voice, You can bring him now, my lads. She knows about it now. And so the mournful little procession moved on, through the field and garden and court, to the miller's house, my grandfather and I following. I shall never forget that night, nor the strange, solemn feeling I had then. Mrs. Miller was very ill. The shock had been too much for her. The men went back in the boat to bring a doctor to the island to see her, and the doctor sent them back again to bring a nurse. He said he was afraid she would have an attack of brain fever, and he thought her very ill indeed. My grandfather and I sat in the Mellor's house all night, for the nurse did not arrive until early in the morning. The six children were fast asleep in their little beds. I went to look at them once to see if little Tempe was all right. She was lying in little Polly's bed. Their tiny hands fast clasped together as they slept. The tears came fast into my eyes as I thought that they both had lost a father, yet neither of them knew anything of their loss. When the nurse arrived, my grandfather and I went home. But we could not sleep. We lighted the kitchen fire and sat over it in silence for a long time. Then my grandfather said, Alec, my lad, it's given me such a turn as I haven't had for many a day. It might have been me, Alec. It just might as well have been me. I put my hand in his and grasped it very tightly as he said this. Yes, he said again, it might have been me. And if it had, I wonder where I should have been now. I didn't speak, and he went on. I wonder where Jim is now, poor fellow. I've been thinking of that all night, ever since I saw him lying at the bottom of that boat. So I told him of what Jim Miller had said to me the last time I'd seen him. On the rock, said my grandfather. Did he say he was on the rock? Dear me, I wish I could say as much, Alec, my lad. Can't you and I come as he came, grandfather, I said. Can't we come and build on the rock, too? Well, said my grandfather, I wish we could, my lad. I began to see what he meant and what the old gentleman meant, too. He said, you're on the sand, my friend. You're on the sand. And it won't stand the storm. No, it won't stand the storm. I've just had those words in my ears all the time we were sitting there by Mrs. Miller. But, dear me, I don't know how to get on the rock. I don't, indeed. The whole of the next week, poor Mrs. Miller lay between life and death. At first, the doctor gave no hope whatever of her recovery, but after time, she grew a little better, and he began to speak more encouragingly. I spent my time with the poor children and hardly left them a moment, doing all I could to keep them quietly happy that they might not disturb their mother. One sorrowful day only, my grandfather and I were absent for several hours from the lighthouse, but we went ashore to follow poor Jim Miller to the grave. His poor wife was unconscious, and knew nothing of what was going on. When, after some weeks, the fever left her, she was still very weak and unfit for work. But there was much to be done, and she had no time to sit still, for a new man had been appointed to take her husband's place, and he was to come into the house at the beginning of the month. We felt very dull and sad the day that the Millers went away. We went down to the pier with them and saw them on board the steamer. Mrs. Miller and the six little children and the servant girl all dressed in mourning, and all of them crying. They were going to Mrs. Miller's home, far away in the north of Scotland, 
where her old father and mother were still living. The island seemed very lonely and desolate when they were gone. If it had not been for our little sunbeam, as our grandfather called her, I do not know what we should have done. Every day we loved her more, and what we dreaded most was that a letter would arrive some Monday morning to tell us that she must go away from us. Dear me, Alec, my grandfather would often say, how little you and me thought that that stormy night, what a little treasure we had gotten wrapped up in that funny little bundle. The child was growing fast, and the fresh sea did her great good, and every day she became more intelligent and pretty. We were very curious to know who was appointed in Jim Miller's place, but we were not able to find out even what his name was. Captain Sawyer said that he did not know anything about it, and the gentleman who came over once or twice to see about the house being repaired and put in the order for the newcomer were very silent on the subject and seemed to think us very inquisitive if we asked any questions. Of course, my comfort depended very much upon who our neighbor was, for he and my grandfather would be constantly together, and we should have no one else to speak to. My grandfather was very anxious that we should give the man a welcome to the island and make him comfortable on his first arrival. So I set to work, as soon as the millers were gone, to dig up the untidy garden belonging to the next house and make it as neat and pretty as we could for the newcomers. I wonder how many of them will be, I said, as we were at the work in this garden. Maybe only just the man, said Grandfather. When I came here first, I was a young unmarried man, Alec. But we soon shall know all about him. He'll be here next Monday morning, they say. It's a wonder he hasn't been over before, I said, to see the house and the island. I wonder what he'll think of it. He'll be strange at first, poor fellow, said my grandfather, but we'll give him a bit of a welcome. Have a nice bit of breakfast ready for him, Alec, my lad, and for his wife and, and children, too, if he has any. Hot coffee and cakes and a bit of meat and anything else you like. They'll be glad of it after crossing over here. So we made our little preparations and waited very anxiously indeed for Monday's steamer. Chapter 10. Our New Neighbor. Monday morning came and found us standing on the pier as usual, waiting for the arrival of the steamer. We were very anxious indeed to see our new neighbors. A nice little breakfast for four or five people was set on our little kitchen, and I had gathered a large bunch of flowers from our garden to make the table look cheerful and bright. All was ready, and in due time the steamer came puffing up towards the pier, and we saw a man standing on the deck talking to Captain Sawyers, who we felt sure must be the new lighthouse man. Puff, puff, said little Tempe. I don't see a wife, said my grandfather, nor any children, said I, as I held little Tempe up that she might see the steamer. Puff, 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 she said, as it came up and then turned round and laughed merrily. The steamer came up to the landing place, and my grandfather and I went down to the steps to meet Captain Sawyers and the stranger. Here's your new neighbor, Sandy, said the captain. Will you show him the way to his house, whilst I see to your goods? Welcome to the island, said my grandfather, clasping his hand. He was a tall, strongly built man, very sunburnt and weather-beaten. Thank you, said the man, looking at me all the time. It's pleasant to have a welcome. That's my grandson, Alex, said my grandfather, putting his hand on my shoulder. Your grandson, repeated the man, looking earnestly at me. Your grandson, indeed. And now come along, said my grandfather, and get a bit of something to eat. We've got a cup of coffee all ready for you at home, and you'll be right welcome, I assure you. It's very kind of you, said the stranger. We were walking up towards the house, and the man did not seem much inclined to talk. I fancied once that I saw a tear in his eye, but I thought I must have been mistaken. What could he have to cry about? I little knew all that was passing through his mind. 
By the by, said my grandfather, turning round suddenly upon him, what's your name? We've never heard it yet. The man did not answer. My grandfather looked at him in astonishment. Have you got no name, he said, or you have objections to folks knowing what your name is? Father, said the man, taking hold of my grandfather's hand, don't you know your own lad? Why, it's my David, Alec. Look, Alec, that's your father. It is indeed. And then my grandfather fairly broke down and sobbed like a child, whilst my father grasped me tightly with one hand and put the other on my shoulder. I won't let them tell you, he said. I made them promise not to tell you till I could do it myself. I heard of Jim Miller's death as soon as I arrived in England, and I wrote off and applied for the place at once. I told them I was your son, father, and they gave it to me at once, as soon as they heard where I'd been all these years. And where have you been, David, never to send us a line all the time? Well, it's a long story, said my father. Let's come in, and I'll tell you all about it. So we went in together, and my father still looked at me. He's very like her father, he said in a husky voice. I knew he meant my mother. Then you heard about poor Alice, said my grandfather. Yes, he said. It's a very curious thing. A man from those parts happened to be on board the vessel I came home in, and he told me all about it. I felt as if I had no heart left in me when I heard she was gone. I had just been thinking all the time how glad she would be to see me. Then my grandfather told him all he could about my poor mother, how she had longed to hear from him, and how as week after week and month after month went by and no news came, she had gradually become weaker and weaker. All this and much more, he told him, and whenever he stopped, my father always wanted to hear more, so that it was not until we were sitting over the watchroom fire in the evening that my father began to tell us his story. He had been shipwrecked on the coast of China. The ship had gone to pieces not far from shore, and he and three other men had escaped safely to land. As soon as they stepped on shore, a crowd of Chinese gathered round them with anything but friendly faces. They were taken prisoners and carried before some men who seemed to be the governor of that part of the country. He asked them a great many questions, but they did not understand a word of what he said, and of course could not answer him. For some days my father and the other men were very uncertain what their fate would be, for the Chinese at that time were exceedingly jealous of any foreigner landing on their shore. However, one day they were brought out to the wooden house in which they had been imprisoned, and taken a long journey of some two hundred miles into the interior of the country. And here it was that my poor father had been all these years when we thought him dead. He was not unkindly treated, and he taught the half-civilized people there many things which they did not know and which they were very glad to learn. But both by day and by night he was carefully watched lest he should make his escape. He never found a single opportunity of getting away from them. Of course, there were no posts and no railroads in that remote place, and he was quite shut out of the, from the world. And of what was going on at home, he knew as little as if he had been living in the moon. Slowly and drearily, eleven long years passed away. And then one morning, they were suddenly told they were to be sent down to the coast and put on board a ship bound for England. They told my father that there had been a war and that one of the conditions of peace was that they should give up all foreigners in their country whom they were holding as prisoners. Well, David, my lad, said my grandfather, when he had finished his strange story, it's almost like getting thee back from the dead to have thee in the old home again. Chapter 11 On the Rock About a fortnight after my father arrived, we were surprised one Monday morning by another visit from old Mr. Davis. 
His son-in-law had asked him to come and tell my grandfather that he'd received a letter with regard to the little girl who was saved from the victory. So he told my father and me as we stood on the pier, and all the way to the house I was wondering what the letter could be. Tempe was running by my side, her little hand in mine, and I could not bear to think how dull we should be when she was gone. Well, it's surely Mr. Davis, said my grandfather as he rose to meet the old gentleman. Yes, said he, it is Mr. Davis, and I suppose you can guess what I've come for. Not to take our little sunbeam, sir, said my grandfather, taking Tempe in his arms. You never mean to say you're going to take her away. Wait a bit, said the old gentleman, sitting down and fumbling in his pocket. Wait until you've heard this letter, and then see what you think about her going. And he began to read as follows. Dear Sir, I am almost overpowered with joy by the news received by telegram an hour ago. We have heard of the loss of the victory, and we're mourning for our little darling as being among the number of those drowned. Her mother has been quite crushed by her loss, and has been dangerously ill ever since the sad intelligence reached us. Need I tell you what our feelings were when we suddenly heard that our little dear child was alive and well and happy? We shall sail by the next steamer for England to claim our little darling. My wife is hardly strong enough to travel this week, or we should come at once. A thousand thanks to the brave men who saved our little girl. I shall hope soon to be able to thank them myself. My heart is too full to write much today. Our child was traveling home under the care of a friend, as we wished her to leave India before the hot weather set in, and I was not able to leave for two months. This accounts for the name Villers not being on the list of passengers on board the Victory. Thanking you most sincerely for all your efforts to let us know of our child's safety, I remain yours very truly, Edward Villers. Now, said the old gentleman looking at me and laughing, as though I saw a tear in his eye, won't you let them have her? Well, to be sure, said my grandfather. What can one say after that? Poor things, how pleased they are. Tempe, I said, taking the little girl on my knee, who do you think is coming to see you? Your mother is coming, coming to see little Tempe. The child looked earnestly at me, and she evidently had not quite forgotten the name. She opened her blue eyes wider than usual and looked very thoughtful for a minute or two. Then she nodded her head very wisely and said, Dear mother, coming to see Tempe? Bless her, said the old gentleman, stroking her fair little head. She seemed to know all about it. Then we sat down to breakfast, and whilst we were eating it, Old Mr. Davis turned to me and asked if I had read the little piece of paper. Yes, sir, said my grandfather. Indeed, we have read it. And he told about Jim Miller and what he had said to me that last morning. And now, said my grandfather, I wish if we would be so kind, would you tell me how to get on the rock? For I am on the sand now, and there's no doubt at all about it. I'm afraid, as you said the last time you were here, that it won't stand the storm. It would be a sad thing, said old Mr. Davis, to be on the sand when the great storm comes. Ah, sir, it would, said my grandfather. I often lay in bed at nights and think of it, when the winds and the waves are raging. I call to mind that verse where it says about the sea and the waves roaring and the men's hearts failing for fear. Deary me, I should be terribly frightened that I should if that day was to come and I saw the Lord coming in glory. You need not be afraid if you're on the rock, said our old friend. All who have come to Christ and are resting on him will find a safe in that day as you do when there is a raging storm and you are inside this house. Yes, said my grandfather, I see that, sir. But somehow I don't know what you mean by getting on the rock. I, I don't quite see it, sir. Well, said Mr. Davis, 
What would you do if this house were built on sand down there by the shore and you knew that the very first storm that came would sweep it away? Do, sir, said my grandfather, why, I should pull it down, every stone of it, and build it up on a rock instead. Exactly, said Mr. Davis. You've been building your hopes of heaven on the sand, on your good deeds, on your good intentions, on all sorts of sand heaps. You know you have. Yes, said my grandfather, I know I have. Well, my friend, said Mr. Davis, pull them down. Say to yourself, I am a lost man if I remain as I am. My hopes are all resting on the sand. And then build your hopes on something better, something that will stand the storm. Build them on Christ. He is the only way. He has died that you, a poor sinner, might go there. Build your hopes on him, my friend. Trust to what he has done for you as your only hope of heaven. That is building on the rock. I see, sir. I understand you now. Do that, said Mr. Davis, and then your hope will be a sure and steadfast hope, a good hope which can never be moved. And when the last great storm comes, it will not touch you. And you will be as certainly and as entirely safe in that day as you are in this lighthouse when the storm is raging outside, because you will be built upon the immovable rock. cannot recollect all the conversation which Mr. Davis and my grandfather had that morning. But I do remember that before he went away, he knelt down with us and prayed that we might, every one of us, be found on the rock in that last great storm. And I remember also that night when my grandfather said good night to me. He said, Alec, my lad, I don't mean to go to sleep tonight until I can say, like poor Jim Miller, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And I believe my grandfather kept his word. Chapter 12, The Sunbeam Claimed It was a cold, cheerless morning when the wind was blowing and the rain was beating against the windows. It was far too wet and stormy for little Tempe to be out, so she and I had a game of ball together in the kitchen whilst my father and grandfather went down to the pier. She looked such a pretty little thing that morning. She had on a little blue frock, which my grandfather had bought for her and which Mrs. Miller had made before she left the island, and and a clean white pinafore. She was screaming with delight as I threw the ball over her head, and and she ran to catch it. When the door opened and my father ran in, Alec, is she here? They've come. Who's come, father? I said. Little Tempe's father and mother, they're coming up the garden now with your grandfather. He had hardly finished speaking before my grandfather came in with a, a lady and gentleman. The lady ran forward as soon as she saw her child, put her arms around her, and held her as tightly to her bosom as she could never part with her again. Then she sat down with her little darling on her knee and stroked her little hands and talking to her and looking, oh, so anxiously, to see if the child remembered her. At first, Tempe looked a little shy and hung down her head and would not look at her mother's face. But this was only for a minute. As soon as her mother spoke to her, she evidently remembered her voice. And with it, Mrs. Villers asked her with tears in her eyes, Do you know me, little Tempe? My dear little Tempe, who am I? The child looked up and smiled as she said, Dear mother, Tempe's dear mother. She put up her little fat hand to stroke her mother's face. And then when I saw that, I could no longer feel sorry that the child was going away. I can well remember what a happy morning that was. Mr. and Mrs. Villers was so kind to us and so very grateful that all that my grandfather and I had done for their little girl. They thought she was looking so much better and stronger than when she had left India, and they were so pleased to find that she had not forgotten all the little lessons she had learned at home. Mrs. Villers seemed as if she could not take her eyes off the child. 
wherever little Tempe went and whatever she was doing, her mother followed her. And I shall never forget how happy and how glad both the father and the mother looked. But the most pleasant day will come to an end. And in the evening, a boat was to come from shore to take Mr. and Mrs. Villers and the child away. Dear me, said my grandfather with a groan as he took the little girl on his knee. I never felt so sorry to lose anybody, never. I'm sure I didn't. Why, I calls her my little sunbeam, sir. You'll excuse me saying so, but I don't feel over and above kindly to you for taking her away from me. I don't indeed, sir. Then I don't know what you will say to me when you hear I want to rob you, father, said Mr. Villers. Rob me, father, repeated my grandfather. Yes, said Mr. Villers, putting his hand on my shoulder. I want to take this grandson of yours away, too. It seems to me a great pity that such a fine lad should waste his days shut up on this little island. Let him come with me, and I will send him to a really good school for three or four years, and then I will get him some good clerkship or something of that kind, and put him in a way of making his way in the world. Now then, my dear friend, will you and his father spare him? Well, said my grandfather, I don't know what to say to you. Sir, it's very good of you. Very good indeed it is. And it would be a fine thing for Alec. It would indeed. But I always thought he would take my place here when I was dead. Yes, said my father. But you see, I shall be here to do that, father. And if Mr. Villers is so kind as to take Alec, I'm sure we ought to only be too glad for him to have such a friend. You're right, David. Yes, you're right. We mustn't be selfish, sir. And you'd let him come and see us sometimes, wouldn't you? Oh, to be sure, said Mr. Villers. He can come and spend his holidays here and give you the fine histories of his school life. Now, Alec, what do you say? There's a capital school in the town where we're going to live, so you would be near us and you could come see us on holiday afternoons and see whether this little woman remembers all that you've taught her. What do you say? I'm very pleased indeed and very thankful for the kindness, and my father and grandfather said they would never be able to repay him. Repay me, said Mr. Villers. Why, my friends, it's I who can never repay you. Just think for one moment of what you've given me. And he put his arms round his little girl's neck. So we may consider the matter settled. And now, when can Alec come? My grandfather begged for another month, and Mr. Villers said it would do very well as in that time the school would be reopened after the holidays. And so it came to pass that when I said goodbye to little Tempe that afternoon, it was with the hope of soon seeing her again. Her father called her Lucy, which I found was her real name. Tempe was a pet name, which had been given to her as a baby, though Lucy was certainly a prettier name. Still, I felt I should always think of her as Tempe, my little Tempe. I shall never forget my feelings that month. A strange new life was opening up for me, and I felt quite bewildered by the prospect. My grandfather and father and I sat over the watchroom fire, night after night, talking over our future, and day after day I wondered over our dear little island, wondering how I should feel when I said goodbye to it, and went into the great world beyond. Since old Mr. Davis's visit, there's been a great change in our little home. The great Bible has been taken down from its place and carefully read and studied, and Sunday was no longer spent by us like any other day, but it was kept as well as it could be on that lonely island. My grandfather, I felt sure, was a new man. Old things had been passed away, and all things become new. He was dearer to me than ever, and I felt very sorrowful when I thought of parting from him. I could never have left you, Grandfather, I said one day, if my father had not been here. No, he said, I don't think I could have spared you, Alec, but your father just came back in the right time, didn't you, David? 
At last the day arrived on which Mr. Villers had appointed to meet me at the town, to which the steamer went every Monday morning when it left the island. My father and grandfather walked me down to the pier and saw me on board. And the very last thing my grandfather said to me was, Alec, my lad, keep on the rock. Be sure you keep on the rock. And I trust that I have never forgotten my grandfather's last words to me. It was founded upon the rock. Matthew 7:25. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. When long appears my toilsome race, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the stolid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, and blood support me in the whelming flood. When every earthly prop gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking stand. But when the last trumpet's voice shall sound, oh, may I then in him be found, robed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And that's the end of the book. That was a short book, but it was really a powerful message of the gospel, and I I love that book, and thanks Steve um, Ming for suggesting that book. Next week, we will begin a new book, and I'll let that be a surprise to you. I love you. I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.